0: My best friend has fuzzy hair My best friend walks with
1: a tail in the air My Welcome to Dog friend. Talk and Kitties Too. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I wrote the Dog Bible, everything your dog wants you to know, as well as the Cat Bible, everything your cat expects you to know, because I care about people who care about cats and dogs. The human-animal bond is what this show is all about finding authors and experts to talk about cats, dogs, and the many other creatures who share our world. This is listener-supported WLIW-FM, Long Island's only NPR station in Southampton, serving eastern Long Island and southern Connecticut over the air at 88.3 and at 96.9 in western Suffolk. This is where I originated the show and have never missed a week for 14 years. At radiopetlady.com, there's a podcast library, with more than 750 episodes, along with my other Pet Talk podcast shows. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. This show is made possible with the support of Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat, the privately-owned litter and cat food company founded by Dr. Elsie, a feline-only veterinarian in Colorado, where he created a variety of litters, as well as inventing clean protein cat foods, based on the protein found in cats' natural prey. This show is also brought to you by Waruva, the Foreman family-owned pet food company named after their rescued kitties, Webster, Rudy, and Vanessa, where all their recipes and cans and pouches are human edible because they're made in a human food facility. My guests today are Anjani Anand, In Southern India, who's the Senior Community Engagement Manager for Repurpose Global, talking about how we need to be more aware about our plastic footprint. Jeffrey Burton will be here with his new thriller, The Lost. And Dr. Shui, the most famous acupuncturist in America, who has taught the vast majority of veterinarians how to be acupuncturists and founded the Qi Institute, will be here to talk about his lifetime work. I am so delighted to be reaching around the world to help the world be a healthier, safer place uh, with less plastic in it. I've been introduced to a quite extraordinary group called Repurpose Global, and I'm so pleased to have Anjani Anand from Bangalore in southern India, who's the senior community engagement manager, to talk about what they're doing to reduce plastic or re- maybe even reduce a, a, or increase awareness of the plastic mess that's around. I learned about it through Earth Animal that's one of the sponsors of this show. And while they make a lot of pet products, their their emphasis in the last few years has really been about the planet and green and reducing waste and re- repurposing and recycling so, Anjini, it's wonderful to have you here, and I'm very excited to meet you as part of a company doing something much bigger. It's global, and it goes way beyond the pet industry. Do you have many industries reaching out to you to make partnerships?
2: Hi. Hi, JC. It's a, it's a pleasure to be here to talk about everything that we do at Repurpose Global. Um, and, yeah, that's right. We have um, mostly CPG, consumer packaged goods brands. Um, that span across all types of sectors, like mom and baby care. Um, we have a lot of brands from the personal care and beauty industries, um, a lot of packaged foods, um, mostly the kinds of industries where plastic is sort of um, a necessary evil. Right. Uh, because different, different sorts of maybe FDA regulations, USDA regulations, um, oxygen barriers, Um, So those are the kinds of brands that reach out to partner with us.
1: And how long have you been in existence as a nonprofit, I guess, educational uh, or or informational resource? Have you have you preceded this more recent awareness? Are you guys old waiting for everyone to catch up or are you have you you caught the newer wave of, of consciousness?
2: So Repurpose Global was born four years ago when our co-founders, uh, Peter, Adi, and Svanika were working on a thesis at Wharton. Um, and they really were tapping into the idea that carbon credits is such a mature space, but but the idea that plastic credits was still um, not something that people were looking at was, was a gap that they were looking to fill. Um, so we're not actually a non- non-profit, we're a social enterprise um, that's just critically... Um, financing innovations that work towards solving the plastic problem Um, so we're dedicated to making environmental action accessible worldwide and the way we're doing that is by focusing on plastic action to start with um, and then we hope to expand beyond that
1: that is that's very very well explained you said the word carbon credit, and then you referred to plastic credit. Those are new words to me. I don't know if they are to my audience. I understand that the, the words that were used previous to the awareness of the plastic horrors in the oceans and on the land, people talked about a carbon footprint and carbon emissions. And, and I never heard it spoken of as carbon credit. Is that a phrase that means you offset the ill you're doing with good?
2: Um, that's exactly right. So a carbon credit would essentially look at first you would have to calculate your carbon footprint, which is how much carbon you're emitting or how much carbon you're causing through your business activities. Um, and then a carbon credit is about one ton of carbon that's offset um, in in the world naturally, um, so that's that's the space of carbon credits. So when someone claims to be carbon neutral, they're essentially purchasing enough carbon credits to rebalance their carbon footprint. And it's a very similar concept with plastic credits. Um, we're looking at recovering one kilogram of low-value plastic from nature. Um, so we would calculate Earth Animal, for example, we would calculate their plastic footprint, which is how much plastic they use in manufacturing and packaging. Uh, in operations, and then we would give them an equivalent amount of, cal- uh, of plastic credits to rebalance their footprint. Um, so so that's how they're able to sort of take action for all of the plastic they're putting out in the world while they're looking for reduction strategies, while they're looking for other materials that can replace plastic in the long run.
1: So it, it's, a, it's a remediation or a mediation at the same time of saying okay some ill we have to do we we can't help it it's just how we have to do business and then it's sort of like getting dispensation in some religious way right you 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 make enough offerings to the gods or say enough prayers or whatever it may be in a religion it's sort of what it feels like to me because for most people in their lives they might have a recycle bin in their house and that's yeah. another conversation i like to have with you. And into it, we put all the things that we think have a recycling um, symbol on them. But we mm-hmm. don't really know where it's all going to wind up and who's sorting it and are they sorting it. And it, it's a complicated for for a consumer. It's complicated. You go into any store. I'm sure the same as in India. And almost everything that you want to buy has some plastic around it or probably mm-hmm. was made in some factory that had to use a lot of plastic. So it's not like you you can bring your own recyclable carry bag, but that's maybe about as far as you can go. So it's really interesting, this credit idea. To go back to a minute for your founder, he went to the Wharton School of Business and realized that the focus was on carbon when, let's say, the future problem or the concurrent problem was plastic.
2: Um, so all three of the founders met at Wharton. Oh, I'll be think- darned. Yeah, and I think at the time um, the idea was a little bit different from plastic credits. The idea back then um, that we have a bunch of landfills, especially uh, in in the global south and developing countries, where the average lifespan of communities around those um, those landfills is about thirty five years. Oh my um, god! Yeah, which is ridiculous in today's day and age. And they noticed that, and they were actually looking at um, creating technology for for the optimization of waste picking um, and sorting through waste and then from there they realized that i mean there's a lot of good solutions out there what we're lacking is really funding um, because a lot of times it's not very profitable to deal with low value plastics so you have your high value plastics like pet where they're they're probably going to get recycled because there's um there's profit to be made along the supply chain but then you have your low-value plastics like your your chips wrappers, your your candy wrappers, um where chances are they're just not gonna get picked up um, because nobody's profiting from them. So what we're doing is um plastic credits are essentially an instrument to to microfinance the incentivization of those kinds of plastics and their collection and their um safe um disposal so so that's the idea that we're working with right now um and yeah like you said i think it's it's not so much um like assuaging guilt of of, of right. but we have
1: it right we do have the guilt
2: yeah, but it's also unavoidable in a sense, right? Um yes. I mean, you have, take frozen foods, for example, or even pet foods, right? Sure. A lot of times, you have to be uh, using plastic to to make sure that the food stays fresh, that you know there is less food wastage, um, and even switching to materials like carbon and gla- uh, like cardboard, glass, um, and aluminium could result in higher carbon footprints. So uh-huh. it's kind of, a lot of brands are stuck between a rock and a hard place, yes. right? Yes. Yes. You have to consider the cost of of things like glass and aluminium. Um, Sometimes it's just not possible to to make that switch. So at at Repurpose, we we always say that this isn't a silver bullet solution by any means. This is just the first step. This is kind of what should be done as a first step while we're looking at what else can be done um, as a longer term solution.
1: But isn't that really what we're we're all hoping for is a company like yours that says we have a a way to begin to ameliorate the problem because that silver bullet is probably in this form of a fast silver bullet never going to come. So if we all just sat around bemoaning it, feeling guilty, wringing our hands, not knowing what to do with the lovely bag that the – wisdom food from earth animal came in which does plague me because you think wow in another country somebody could you know carry their their wood home in this bag or they could bring their rice home in this bag or whatever but I, I, we get this idea that when we put it into our recycling bin we're not really doing anyone a favor and i want you to correct me about this because while it may have a recycle recyclable insignia on it if it's not a one or a two if it's a number higher than that again it's a kind of wish fulfillment like later on in life we will find a way to do something with this because right now we don't know so is that true those higher numbers if you put them in the recycle bin no one's actually recycling them and does it make it harder for them to recycle what's in there that is now currently possibly recyclable
2: Um, I think that's a bit of a tricky one because it isn't like it's impossible to recycle some of the lower numbers like um, LDPE, for example, is is lower than one or two, but it is possible to recycle it. Again, it's just a profit. It's a profit question. So um, I think in the US last last I remember, there's about. 32% 32% of all waste is, of all recyclable waste is actually being recycled. So you're right in thinking that everything that you put into the recycle bin is not getting recycled. Um, but what makes it a little bit more complicated than that is, um, even though there might be a solution for a lower grade of plastic, um, a lot of times countries in the global north, including the U.S., ship out low-value plastics to, to developing oh, countries. Right. You have shipping containers full of just waste material going across and getting dumped uh, in a country that doesn't have the infrastructure, doesn't have the funding to deal with it. Um, And that's why all of Repurpose Global's projects are focused in the Global South, because um, we're able to do more, uh, more effective cleanups. um, Because as you can imagine, the same $1 would help us remove a lot more plastic in a place like Indonesia than it would in a place like Canada, right? Right. Right. yeah. And uh, and what we try to do for example in the same Indonesia example we're picking up flexible LDPE which is like type 4 waste um and creating uh recycled pallets out of it that are then really to- Yeah.
1: You're doing it. Repurpose Global is actually collecting it and has a way to do that.
2: So we um What we do is we find impact of waste segregation and waste collection organizations across the world that are already doing all of this stuff. Um, And then we help find a way to divert more funding and financing to them uh, to be able to focus on these sorts of waste streams. Um, So it might be a few cents for for a waste worker in Indonesia to collect PET, but they might get zero cents to collect low-value plastics. So we would you would make up
1: that difference. Oh, Um, I see. So when you talk about waste pickers, this is an important thing for us all to think about. Periodically, we see in the Western press uh, pictures of especially young children and adults as well, walking on mountains of garbage and collecting Mm -hmm. in sacks on their back, whatever it is that day or that place they're collecting, whether it's metal or plastic or whatever other thing they're collecting. When you talk about the average lifespan of people near these waste dumps being 35 years old, is it because they were waste pickers? Is it because they were involved in this um, process, in this job?
2: Yeah, it's it's a it's a couple of different factors. It could be that they're they're involved in waste work and uh, people aren't segregating their waste collect uh, correctly. And you have, like you said, the mountains of garbage where methane could be produced within those mountains, and it could cause explosions um, where people actually get buried in in those mountains. um, so it could be those sorts of things. There's also long-term exposure to, to harmful and hazardous right. um, chemicals, mm-hmm. a, a lot of waste being badly disposed that causes it. Um, but more than that, there's, there's. I mean, even if you aren't employed in the sector, uh, if you're living around these areas, you have leachate going into your groundwater. You have um, right. all of the- like chemical runoffs entering your food supply. Um, so your air quality is is probably, um, you know, reeling from some sort of open air incineration. Burning. yes. Yeah, but that usually happens in landfills. So I think it's a multitude of factors. Um, what we try to do at Repurpose is we recognize that it's not just an environmental problem. There's also a really... Very real uh, socioeconomic problem that's attached to to being involved with waste work in in these um, in these geographies. So a portion of our funding actually goes towards socioeconomic undertakings, um, including vaccination drives, setting up portable um, you know toilets where there aren't any, um, you know, just just providing. Uh, anything that we think can bridge the gap between where the waste workers' lives are and where we'd love for them to be, because usually they're stuck in a cycle of poverty that's very hard to get out of. Um, so, yeah, that's that's another aspect that we're working on. And of course, um, this should go without saying, but all of our waste uh, worker partners, all of our impact partners on the ground through whom we have repurposed projects um, are are making sure that we have the highest levels of documentation for who's working um on all of these supply chains so we're making sure there's no child labor of course uh, no malpractice um and we're trying to ensure job security in in a sector where the that's virtually Um, I mean, unheard of so far.
1: How extraordinary. You know, it's such a different way of looking at the world. You're accepting that this is a reality. And yes, it's a cycle of poverty, but you can still improve human lives. And you can give some measure of comfort or dignity or reliability to it, possibly some safety, rather than Mm -hmm. thinking, oh, this is hopeless. Look at these poor, pathetic people doing this horrible thing. Oh, woe is me. You're saying it's a job. And they're maybe supporting themselves or a family, and they're actually doing something that's of value to society. So let's take better care of them. It's it's There's so many aspects to this, Anjani, and we're almost out of time. I just want to say that I really didn't understand the extent of what you're doing and the way in which everybody could contribute even if it's a dollar, we're giving a dollar to those people who are the end workers at the end of the waste chain. So I think I think it's wonderful. I, I'm going to send you personally a donation because it will assuage my guilt and it'll make me feel that I'm making some teeny tiny small difference because you guys have figured out the formula to make a big difference. So I just want to say wonderful, wonderful work, a wonderful, a wonderful way for the Wharton School of Business to have given back something really positive and productive and important to the world through those three graduates. And now to all the people that they've had join them like you around the world. It's great. And I really appreciate you being here and the work you're doing. Thank you so much.
2: Thank you, Jacy, And I, I really appreciate you bringing this conversation to a larger audience because I think what we can do as individuals that, that we sometimes don't recognize is just being more cognizant of it and being able to talk about mm. these things. And um, I think something you touched upon is the, uh, a lot of time around these bigger problems that we're facing today. Mm. Um, there's a lot of doomsday conversation yes, with all yes. and climate anxiety. Um, and sometimes it's good to just Take a step back and see if there is a solution, however small it might be, um, to to start picking away at the problem a little bit.
1: That's exactly right. Thank you so much for being here. This show is brought to you in part by Merrick Pet Care, which began as a family-run company in Texas 30 years ago, where they are still making natural pet food. They also provide nutrition to pet shelters in Chicago and Texas and to the service dogs for veterans from Canines for Warriors. This show is also supported by Cradle, calming products to reduce stress for dogs using broad-spectrum CBD from U.S.-grown hemp, formulated with a proprietary blend of nutraceutical ingredients. Jeff Burton is back with another Mace Reed canine mystery. This one is called The Lost. He's been on the show before. You've heard, and I'm sure by now, read the Keepers, The Finders, The Eulogist, The Linchpin, The Chessman. Not all of those are Mace Reed Canine Mysteries, are they, Jeff? But a lot of wonderful books. How many of them are The Canine Mysteries?
0: Hey, Tracy, thanks for having me back. Um, the Canine Mysteries, The Finders, came out a couple of um, years ago. That was the first one. And the keepers came out last year, and then the lost came out. Well, the
1: lost will come out in a few weeks. Well, it, it's it'll be out by the time people hear this conversation. That's why we're planning well, it right <laughs> when your publishing date is. I would never, I would never get people excited and then not let them be able to get the book. It's a wonderful book. Best. It's got a great um, cover because your your wonderful golden retriever character. She looks so genuine on the front. It's not one of those glamour pictures. She's been for a good dip in a pool or a lake or something, hasn't she?
0: Right, right. I am so happy with all the um, graphic artists that have worked on these. You know, they'll they'll run them by me, and I just I just go. Uh, it's great. That's fantastic.
1: It is. It's wonderful. And that's Vera, who is um, the golden retriever. Now, right. in this book, you you add another canine uh, sidekick finder very good finder
0: right in this one um we have a puppy named billy joe he uh, mace tends to name him after songs and so billy joe is from the bobby lee gentry ode to billy joe um that billy joe McAllister jumped off the Tallahassee yes. bridge i won't sing i don't want to drive away any listeners um <laughs> but i have i have a lot of fun with billy because mace also knows him as bill the roller and he takes i think i think a lot of folks in the audience have dogs and and you definitely have stories of things that the dogs have rolled in oh yeah and um in this case i kind of carry it to the next level i i had an australian shepherd that got away from me once you know bolted out the door and was gone maybe 15 seconds I have no idea how she knew exactly where the pile was, but she came (laughs) running back just, just smelling. Um, And so I had a lot of fun with, with uh, Bill and I've got a, um, currently I have, have a beagle named Milo. And so I, I remember I was writing a chapter on Bill and having a lot of fun with him. And then I took Milo for a walk and we've got a lot of nature trails nearby and we were going down a nature trail. And he did that thing where he's sniffing, and I could see the pile. And then he Uh-oh. started to, you know, tilt the shoulder. Yeah, yeah. And and I dove for it, Tracy. I <laughs> dove for it. And I, I I thought I I thought I made it in time, Tracy, but but I didn't. <laughs> and uh, I, I had to wash the collar. I tried to um, I tried to go on the cheap and get that. Uh, Shampoo um, that no water shampoo you can just kind of rub on them, but but no oh, way no, that
1: doesn't work when they've had a good pile to roll in. No, it's why I, I definitely have embraced the washable collar because somehow oh, you can yeah. get it off the dog, but the collar requires a stiff brush and some uh, and some laundry soap or Dawn or something. Yeah, they're they're very good at that. I, how much do you think your own dogs, past and present, have? sort of drawn you into having a series, which is very doggy. They're, they're very intense mysteries. I mean, they're really very driven by plot and by serious violent and confusing things that people do, but the dogs are, are in it. How much do you think your own history with dogs has inspired you to make sure there's always a dog around?
0: Well, I think um, the Mace Reed series has kind of allowed me to merge my my love of dogs with my love of writing mystery thrillers, and I take little bits of um, characterizations from dogs that I've had, and you know all the different oddity, the little personality quirks, and I tried to kind of kind of load them up. I mean, Vira is the um, the the hero. She's kind of his prized pupil, human remains detection dog. And there's also um, Sue, who's a male German Shepherd who's kind of the the alpha and he's kind of patriarchal and cantankerous. And he thinks he runs the household and he, you know, maybe he does. And then he's got um, Delta Dawn and Maggie May, a couple of short haired farm collies that are wonderfully lovable, except when they're trying to drive Mace insane. And they'll kind of, they'll give him odd looks now and then. And I I have that from, from, um, oh, what was that? No, that was my Australian Shepherd. I'd I'd pick up my keys or something and then I'd look at her and she'd be looking at me and I'd start patting my pockets and I'm like, where did I put those? (laughs) And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. I I try to get some, um, I try to make. The dogs, real three-dimensional, just like the characters. And then, like you said, I try to throw the whole mix into a real fast-moving thriller.
1: It's a great combination. It's definitely a recipe that you've figured out the ingredients to. It's, it's, it's a wonderful way to get lost in a book, but also be rooting for the dogs when they pop in to, to either save the day or help move the, the plot or the story left or right you're, you live in Minnesota, and I'm wondering, since I know nothing about Minnesota. Um, I mean, like yeah, I didn't know anything about North Dakota and just because I've seen Fargo doesn't mean I know anything about that either. But I'm wondering, <laughs> is that a place that there's there's some mystery writers or just some fiction writers who try to be very geographic to where they live, either the town or the state or the county, and they weave in a lot of uh, local landmarks and lore and and description but you don't do that and i'm wondering are you saving that for the next one or is minnesota just doesn't lend itself to the kind of stories that that percolate from you well it's kind
0: of a um interesting story is my my sister had lived they take place in chicago mace is the um dog handler and he has a um dog obedience school that that he runs around chicago and the different suburbs and that keeps him jumping And so I would always go over and visit my sister and then my wife, um, uh, she would have trade shows in Chicago and I'd get a cheap airline ticket and I'd, I'd have the hotel cover would be caught, would be paid for. And then she had a nice per diem. So she would order, she would order a nice meal and say, bring two plates. And, (laughs) you know, she'd have to, she'd have to get up early and, and work And I got to get up and I'd I'd go down to the trade show because, you know, I need a squeeze ball and I need some, you know, all the little toys they have. And then I'd have the day to just kind of hang out in Chicago.
1: Oh, so you did it like you were an investigative reporter, seeing the town, finding the nooks and crannies.
0: Right. So I just I just had a lot of fun and it was kind of um, whenever there'd be you know, some cheap airline tickets from, from Minneapolis to Chicago. We could get them pretty cheap and we could go and catch a play or we could go and catch a ball game. And so we had some fun with that. And I, Tracy, I got an interesting email from a gentleman in Chicago that goes to gamblers bar, which I, which I talked about in the finders. And the guy said, Hey, you know, I'm, I'm a regular here. And, and how, how do you know about the bar? How do you know about this area? How do you know about this? and so i wrote him back and this is from my my email site on my web page and i sent it to him and he it got a bounce back saying this address doesn't exist so he had he had a typo in his own email oh and i tried fixing it and i, I felt so bad i felt cuz you so wanted bad. him
1: to know you were that kind of author who would answer
0: yeah i know i know it's like oh geez, what a jerk but but so a couple <laughs> months go by and i get um, I get an email from the owner of, of Gamblers and they're, hey, Jeff, you know, a, a regular of ours um, said this. And then I, I got the book and I read about it. And it's, you know, it's so hard to run an establishment these days. And just so pleased that. Oh, thank isn't you so that much. Oh, nice. It was great. And I, I wrote her back and I said, hey, um, would that, because uh, I still <laughs> had the guy's email, would right. that regular happen to be such and such? And she's like, yeah. And I'm like, well, let them know I'm not a jerk. <laughs> uh, they're just, there was a typo. That's but, so um, funny.
1: Well, I mean, I think it's really interesting that g- the geography in some books apparently matters for sales. People who live in Chicago or in Martha's Vineyard want to read books that are set there, which is kind of odd because you think they'd want to read a book set somewhere they haven't been and they could you know, sort of dive into another town or another location. I was just curious right. because I guess living in Minnesota, it's like people who live in New York City don't go to the museums or the Statue of Liberty. So you live in Minnesota. Probably it doesn't I, inspire you because it's, it's just the water you're already swimming in. I, I picked out a, a, a passage for you to read from The Lost, and I'd love you absolutely. to do that now because I picked you a kind of long one, but I think it really – it's a great description of what Vira does and, as a, a detection dog, the, how she finds the, the remains.
0: Excellent. Yeah, you picked a good one. Um, okay. Everybody, are you ready? We're ready. Okay. It hadn't rained much in weeks. The ponds on Druckmann's back property were shallow, the soil dry, and the brush gnarled and thick. Five minutes in, Vira barked. I cut left to follow the sound. Jogged along the gulch until I spotted my golden retriever, dead silent now and quivering as though a million beetles stirred beneath her fur. Vira was having one of her episodes. It was then I spotted the small foot jutting out from behind a boulder. I knelt down, placed a hand on Vira's back, hoping to calm her, hoping she could sense I was there, hoping to snap her out of the spell she was in. I clipped the leash to the back of her harness and wondered for the hundredth time, what happens during these episodes of hers? Is the act of murder so intense, so extreme that some chemical signature lingers, lingers in the place where life has been taken, but lingers for how long? A day, weeks, a month, a thousand years? I followed Vira's gaze to the body. What I saw turned my stomach and I quickly looked away. Someone had smashed supermodel Callie Kurt Druckmann's one stunning face against the boulder, smashed it repeatedly again and again, leaving poor Cali lying out here in the darkness, alone in the cold, never again to grace the cover of any magazine. Suddenly virus sprang to life back in the here and now she knocked hard against my ch- chest, caught my eye for the briefest of seconds, jumped around me and pointed herself back toward the Druckmann mansion tugging hard at the leash. Vira could not have been clearer had she spoken English with closed captioning on display for the hard of hearing, but I held firm, needing a minute to absorb everything, to sort out what my golden retriever was telling me. A flash of movement and I spotted the agent who'd flagged me past the entry gates, cutting into the ravine from the opposite side of the thicket, slowly approaching, his eyes focused at the base of the boulder on what had once been Callie Kurtz. He was one of the agents who'd been helping us search the brush and the muck at the back of the Druckman estate. I tried recalling his name, but came up blank. A horrible sight, the agent said after a long moment and lifted his head toward, toward me. I called Squires and he's on his way. The nameless agent held a cell phone in one hand. I'm gonna go wave him and the others over, try and keep them off to the side off whatever path those bastards took. I'll go get them, I said, standing. You should probably stay here. Secure the scene, or whatever whatever it is you need to do. Okay, the agent agreed, but keep to the side by the bushes and stay off anything that looks like shoe prints or any other tracks they may have left. Vira and I kept to the side, as instructed, as we threaded our way back toward Druckmann, Druckmann's manor. I thought hard about Kenneth Jay Druckmann. And I wondered if he'd concocted his tale of home invasion, of a home invasion turned kidnapping before or after he'd murdered his wife. You see, if Vira peeked into your soul, if she's captured your chemical signature at a murder site, she gets aggressive. Some golden retrievers have it in them to be aggressive, especially if they've experienced abuse or neglect at an early age. But I believe it's Vira's street smarts. Her awareness On some base level of the evil that men do, plus her having connected the brutality of murder to whom she believes to be responsible that triggers her aggression. Sure, Vira's playful, gentle around children, a loving spirit, but if she finds out you've hurt someone or killed them, you'd best be on the next train out of Dodge. And she'd had plenty of time to latch onto Druckmann's chemical signature gotten a big trace off him as we stood at the bottom of the steps while he interacted with special agent squires. It can never be easy. I said absorbed in how best to sway squires away from CEO Druckmann's narrative regarding a random band of home invaders. Perhaps tell him Vera follow- Byra followed the killer sent back to the mansion, which in a manner she had. Perhaps suggest they scour the ravine to see if there there truly were multiple footprints left by multiple assailants. Perhaps I could bring up domestic abuse or crimes of passion or ask him if they still looked at the spouse first. Not overkill, not anything to make it weird with the special agent in charge. Just enough to plant the seed, a notion, in order to point Len Squires in the right direction. Suddenly, another thought occurred to me. What the hell had become of Kenneth J. Druckman's daughter? I stared at my golden retriever. It can never be easy, Kenneth girl. Vira barked once and strained hard at, against the leash.
1: It's great because it really gives a sense of how they work together and the kind of scent she picks up. And in her case, she has these kind of out-of-body experiences or or seizures, whatever you might want to call them, it's really wonderful. And I hope we're running short on time, but I hope that we're going to keep getting to see her and the other dogs in more books. That's a rude thing to say to an author when they've just finished a <laughs> book. But of course, you didn't just finish it. It takes a while for it to get published. And knowing you and your and your uh, prolificness, you probably are are at work on another one. But it's really wonderful. It's it's great in this time in life to be able to escape from all the realities that we're dealing with and and escape into somebody else's nightmare as one small nightmare <laughs> for this family instead of the big nightmare for the world. Jeff Burton, you've done a wonderful job. The Lost a Mace Reed Canine Mystery is delightful, and I think it'll make great summer reading for everyone looking to escape into an intense mystery thriller. Thank you again.
0: Thank you, Tracy. Thank you so much.
1: This show is supported by Earth Animal, privately owned by Dr. Bob and Susan Goldstein, creating holistic pet wellness products with an emphasis on their stewardship of the Pet Sustainability Coalition. This show is also sponsored by the two women who privately own Evermore Pet Food, where they cook dog food from human edible ingredients shipped in frozen pouches directly to people's doors. I am truly excited to be meeting and talking to and sharing with you one of the great lights in the acupuncture veterinary world. Dr. Shea is a pioneer in the United States of bringing acupuncture to animals. He's a professor of the Chi University in Florida, an emeritus professor, at the university, emeritus professor at the University of Florida and the China Agricultural University. Every veterinarian Dr. Shea, that I have ever met in the United States who practices acupuncture or hopes to practice it, has been trained by you. You are truly the engine behind acupuncture being available to horses, dogs, and other animals, cats in the United States. And I just want to say it is a great honor to meet a pioneer who I've heard about for 25, 30 years. So welcome to the show and thank you for your efforts on behalf of treating animals with acupuncture.
3: Thank you so much, Tracy. It's always my honor, happiness now today to be with you with Dog Talk. It's a very (laughs) wonderful program.
1: You're very kind to say that. I learned about a talk you gave recently. You've given thousands of talks, written many books, 30 books actually, and papers, and you've contributed to textbooks, but you recently gave a lecture in Florida at the NAVAC about acupuncture for geriatric pets. And I happen to have one older dog who has disc problems and had both of her ACLs repaired. And I'm feeling guilty, Dr. Shea, because I got acupuncture for her before the surgery. And then I haven't done it since then. And I feel guilty. Can you talk about the value to all of our pets to having acupuncture regularly, if they've certainly had surgeries or traumas and they're old?
3: Uh, Tracy, never feel you know, bad for your pets. You already try what you're able to try. Never too late to acupuncture, by the way. Oh, good. And That's good to know. <laughs> yes, acupuncture is great for general atrophic patient. So let's say, most mostly commonly in my practice, I would say has three groups of general patient, ideal ways. Number one group is, just like you said, is uh, after surgery, after so many western medical approach now can we use acupuncture prevention make them doing better like prevention for second uh, incident of the disc issues right answer is yes and the second group of the conditions that's more commonly used for general pain management so we can use the uh, conventional medication But then a lot of the clients worry about the side effect, diarrhea, vomit, for instance. So in that concern, now instead use pharmaceutical drug, now we can simply use acupuncture for pain management. Works great. The third group, I call this sometimes from conventional medicine, there is no choice. For instance, I often say, 14, 15 years old, gyroactive patient has a multiple diseases, dry eyes, skin conditions, liver conditions, renal failure. The owner is great. The parents give so much for their pets, but then the dog walks slowly. It's a painful. A lot of clients tell me, Dr. Xie, I, mean, I am so painful to watch my dog yes. to walk. Because they're so slow getting up, they're so painful to walk every single step. Now, they already use pain management, but then the dog just life-quality miserable. That's right. Can we help those type of the dog? The answer is yes.
1: One of the things that, that you're, you're mentioning is something that I really try to point out to people. If your dog or your kitty has trouble getting up from lying down, they do it slowly they're in pain, they're in a lot of pain. And Americans, I don't know about other countries and I don't know about China, they look at it and they say, yeah, well, he's just old. But acupuncture does give away, I also think there are supplements that can help, but acupuncture gives away to re- relieve or reduce that pain because most of us don't want to give a pain medication twice a day like Rimadyl or Daramax. For some dogs, it's very bad for them, as you said, but a lot of people, like you said, they don't want to use Western chemical things that cover up the pain. Does acupuncture actually change the way the brain receives the pain message?
3: Answer is uh, a lot of things we don't know. But one thing we do know is acupuncture can release endogenous opioids for instance, like beta endorphin. So they can block the pain pathway. When the pen pathway was black, and then pen relief. So that's actually a lot of sense now with the research behind. We know why acupunctures work because they do black the pen pathway.
1: They block it. So I had read years ago, I I lived in California for a long time where non-conventional, non-traditional integrative medicine and nutrition is sort of endemic, right? It's not like the East Coast where everybody's sort of practical. So I right away tried acupuncture and chiropractic. I had a bunch of pain problems and I I didn't have luck with the acupuncture, but I wonder if it was the acupuncturist until – I moved to the Hamptons and met a half Italian, half Brazilian human acupuncturist. And after a year and a half of treatments two to three times a week, the pain I had lived with for 25 years and nothing had helped was gone forever. So I'm wondering, does it matter the, the person who's giving the acupuncture? Does, should I should everybody, decide if, if it doesn't work with one acupuncturist veterinarian, try another one? Or do you not think it's so much of the individual practitioner that makes the difference?
3: Tracy, that's a great, great question. When I first came to the United States 1990, I was amazed. A lot of people practice acupuncture is totally from what I practice. Exactly. So the, make the acupuncture reputation is not good at all. So definitely, this is almost like a surgeon. You know, you, you go That's to the right. surgeon, mm-hmm. you get a different outcome. So, we are training acupuncturists. They know what they're doing. But some of them, they go to the one weekend of course. They say, I'm acupuncturist. This is almost like a one surgeon or one person saw so, somebody do the surgery. They can this the surgeon. I do think that they will become good the surgeon at all. So, training is important, actually.
1: Training's really important and style. Now there was, and I think there may still be in the Hamptons, I think he was in Hampton Bay, a Chinese acupuncturist from China who did not speak English. Well, if he did, he chose not to speak it to the patients. And he did this very... Unusual, and I found unsatisfying after six or eight treatments for a dog I had at the time, an injection with a very thin needle, let's say like a diabetes kind of needle, and he injected vitamin C into the point where you would put a needle, maybe with electrostimulation or not, but you'd leave it in for, what, 20 minutes, 30 minutes? He would just inject the vitamin C and you'd be home in five minutes. Is that something you've ever heard of?
3: Yes, So acupuncture was developed 3,000 years ago. Many many use the needle, but at once with modern medicine actually helps some of the concept. So for me, acupuncture basically gave the single gave stimulation for acupuncture point. We can use needle stimulation. We can use pressure stimulation. Vitamin C is part of pressure. When you inject that, they're able to make locally getting pressure stimulate. In addition, there are nutritional uh, may consider as well. Vitamin C has a lot of good sense. So maybe synergize with the local pressure. With vitamin C, the body has a more holistic or synergize response and then getting good response.
1: So that injection of vitamin C just an injection, like you're giving a shot in Western terms but it's into an acupuncture point. That can be as valid as putting in a needle that you leave in for an extended period of time.
3: In vit- that's a great question too. In general medicine, what we often use vitamin B12, I think it's the same. We can use vitamin C vitamin B12. And also that depends on clinical conditions. right okay. So for, for example, if I have KCS, dry eyes, we need a lot of local point to work with the dry eyes. The local injections of vitamin C, vitamin B twelve actually may be better and safer. Think about your cat right. has a eye problem, it's already uncomfortable. You put a bunch of needle around right. eye, your dog will be squashed and the needle might yes. be penetrated the yes. eyeball, which yes. is not good. <laughs> now, you're much safer to inject the B12 or vitamin I mean C into their point, make their point work by itself. So, that's actually a great technique for oh, a lot of
1: conditions. That's fascinating. So, is dry eye a condition that you see in like an English bulldog? What kind of, or mastiffs? What kind of dogs get dry eye? I've got dry eye. I didn't know dogs got dry eye. What, is it yeah, certain breeds? Of-
3: Oh, no, actually, a majority for the dog getting older, there could be any breed could be has the dry eye. Some oh. of them uh, could be more common. Yeah, now general acupuncture patients, there are a lot of dogs, that do have the case as dry eye problems. By the way, acupuncture works beautifully for them.
1: That is fabulous. It's so it's so fascinating to me to learn the ways in which acupuncture can work. But to you, it's, it's um, a day, at, a, a walk in the park, a day at work. Is it true that in China, maybe before the revolution, I don't know, I used to read that, that full surgeries were done on humans without any anesthesia or pain medication, just, if you will, just acupuncture being done for the pain management during surgery. Is that really true?
3: The uh, answer is true is acupuncture for pain management. So like for instance, after surgery, we just use acupuncture for pain management without any conventional pharmaceutical drug. Right.: And there's a misunderstanding sometimes. Some people say acupuncture may help to acupuncture asia to allow the surgery. But I still feel surgery is good. Use sedation first. Now, acupuncture just more for pain management. Yes, uh, that is definitely. We can use acupuncture for post operative pain management.
1: So, do you wish you could get even more veterinarians to be trained? So that in a vet hospital, leaving aside COVID where people, you know, couldn't be in the hospital and the animals were released even more quickly, would you like to see dogs after an ACL repair or spinal repair or any other kind of a surgery? Would you like to see acupuncture utilized right away so that these dogs don't have to be on five to 10 days of of painkillers?
3: Definitely, definitely, you know, medication is good, but then some of the side effect we know that is not good for, for the dog. So I would like immediately after surgery, we can use the acupuncture as the pen management instead of pharmaceutical medication. And then I do wish more and more doctors can be able to learn this special modality to apply to their daily practice to help more pets.
1: It would be fabulous. You've trained over 10,000 veterinarians from nearly 100 countries. I, in America, just in my small circle of colleagues and, and interviewees, every, almost every vet that I've talked to that wasn't already acupuncture trained by Dr. Shea at the University of Florida, wanted to become. And it's it's quite demanding. It, it's quite a course, isn't it? You have to spend quite a bit of time with you, which is as it should be. But w- what does that training entail for a veterinarian who's already a vet?
3: So in general, yeah, training is always important. And the, so what we try to do is we kind of hybrid combination with online and site. So we put the theory in online so students are able to study those theory before come to site for clinical more hands-on lab training so i feel that the module works best for those busy doctors now they don't they need to fly so many times right maybe two right. trip to florida and learn those clinical application with combination with online knowledge learning they're able to practice acupuncture effectively.
1: So is this something that you've seen older veterinarians, meaning not fresh out of vet school, maybe they've been practicing 5, 10, or even more years, do you see them embracing the idea of acupuncture and making the commitment to study with you?
3: That's a great question, too. I would say there is a two group. Some people, they say, you know, veterinary medicine changes a lot is now become more and more female doctors. Dr. she. I wish I learned this 10 years ago, just after graduate, but I need a marriage, I have the baby now, my children grew up a little bit, and now my husband more stable. Now I have the time to to learn acupuncture. So I do say a lot lot of those uh, uh, senior clinicians now started to come to Florida to learn acupuncture.
1: Well, I think it's wonderful. Does the University of Florida, do you keep a, a, some sort of a list where you can put in your state or maybe your city or county and see if there's an acupuncturist there?
3: Yes, at the Chi University, we do have the list for those of the doctor who have been trained from Chi University so they can go there to say their uh, credential or training background. So those doctors will be but I trust them that would do good job for your pets.
1: And and as I was saying, in, in my experience as a human a, acceptor of acupuncture, it, it does vary. The, and it, it may be also the reason you're going maybe do you think that there's the reason that you're going may change the the maybe the technique or the style or the expertise of that acupuncturist because we had a radiologist here where I live in Vermont, head of the radiology department at the hospital. And he was trained in acupuncture and he was treating me for something with my knee. And I said, you know, I have these terrible allergies, but I've tried many times with acupuncture and it didn't work. And you were talking about needles around the eye. I must've looked pretty funny. There were needles all in my ears and around my eyes and on my fingers. And he changed my allergies completely. So was that that he had a different technique? Was he better at it?
3: That's a wonderful, wonderful input. Uh, I think each of a clinician has some expertise. Some of the surgeon is good for brain uh, uh, surgeon. Some of them is good for discs, Some other for other type of location. Similar you know, for acupuncture. Some of them are more great with one area, yes. but may didn't good with other areas, similar for acupuncture. So one of the things we try to achieve at Chi University actually, we create master degree programs. So for those, basically, they will study expertise. If I interested in I, they one specifically eye area, that's their expertise. Wow. So they will have three years of master
1: training oh my goodness!
3: So in the future, I will expect more and more acupuncture go to more specific area, just like you mentioned about, you know, your your personal acupuncture is good for allergy.
1: That's that's great. Dr. Shea, we've run out of time. It's so wonderful to meet you, so wonderful to learn more about acupuncture. I'll put a link to the Chi University so people, I hope, can find a veterinary acupuncturist near them who has been touched with your wand of passion and intelligence. Thank you so much for all you've done for hundreds of thousands of animals, having trained tens of thousands of veterinarians. Thank you again for being here.
3: Thank you so much, Tracy.
1: Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed the guests as much as I did. Kiss your kitties and hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now.